So this morning we're going to start a a preaching series in this great book of Romans from the Bible. We're going to take it slowly and a bit at a time. Uh, So the series will take us, uh, for this chunk of the series, it'll take us up to Christmas, where we'll stop at chapter 3, verse 21, which begins with the words, Now a righteousness from God has been revealed. They're great words and appropriate for Christmas, aren't they? Romans is a book in the Bible. It's made up of a letter written by a a, a guy called Paul in the first century to the church in Rome. And this morning I'm going to explain why it's written and how the book, and how the, the, the reason why it's written shapes the content of the book. And then towards the end of the morning we're going to look at the first seven verses that introduce the book. So a bit of an introduction to the book and then the first seven verses. So there are two main reasons why Paul wrote this book. The first was to help the Roman church understand the gospel better. If you're new to to church or if you've not been to church regularly, the word gospel means good news. And particularly in a Christian context, it means good news about Jesus Christ. So Paul writes this letter. He'd never been to Rome Someone else had taken the good news of Jesus there, and the church had sprung up. But he wanted to visit the church in Rome, mostly because he wanted to use that church as a launch pad for a mission to Spain. So if you turn to Romans chapter 15, uh, verse 20, just flick over a few pages, it says this, It's always been my ambition to preach the gospel where Christ was not known, so that I would not be building on someone else's foundation. And then verse 23. But now that there's no more place for me to work in these regions, in other words, the gospel has just, boom, gone out and exploded, I've longed to see you, and I plan to to do so when I go to Spain. I hope to visit you while passing through and to have you assist me on my journey there after I have enjoyed your company for a while. So he's planning this mission trip. He wants to visit Rome and he writes this letter ahead to help them understand the gospel better. And he basically wants them to have such a passion and love for that good news that they just go, uh, 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 Paul, just, just go. Take, take the gospel to the Spanish people. They need it. It's amazing. We love it. Go. The second reason why Paul wrote the book of Romans was to unite Jewish and non-Jewish Christians together. You see, unfortunately, there was a growing division in the Christian world between Jewish and non-Jewish, or Gentile, that's the proper word for non-Jewish, Gentile Christians. And their different traditions and emphases were beginning to cause misunderstandings between them. So there's this tension bubbling in Paul's mind. Because as he was writing this, we reckon he was somewhere around Turkey, and he was on his way to take a collection from the Gentile churches to the church in Jerusalem or Judea, and he's not sure how well that gift will be received. So he writes them this book, and the focus of the book is to explain how this good news, this gospel, brings unity to Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians. And that's a theme that runs right through the book, and he keeps defending this message that the gospel goes to both Jew and Gentile. 
He wants to show that far from being disloyal to Jewish heritage or emphasizing the Gentile reader, on the other hand, actually the gospel unites people from all backgrounds under one person, Jesus Christ. That's why he's writing it. So why do we need it? Why do we need to read this book today? Well, when we come to these opening verses, Paul introduces himself to the Roman readers and explains the gospel to them. And it is a mind-blowing beginning to a letter. Because rather than greet the Roman church with pleasantry, Paul opens with a description of how Jesus shapes a Christian's identity and purpose. That's what our, our verses are about how Jesus shapes a Christian's identity and purpose. The Roman church of Paul's day was struggling with the problem of identity, who they were, what was important to them, what was their purpose now that they were Christians. And for them particularly, identity as a Jewish or a Gentile Christian was a big question. Their problem was also that they were losing their purpose. Those debates, those discussions, those issues were becoming big. So evangelism, reaching out with the good news, was not high on their agenda. They'd become a church that was just surviving, a church that was infighting. They were losing that focus. So he he writes to help his his readers kind of refocus, reshape their identity in the gospel. And it's identity that is the reason why these verses are so relevant to the modern Christian and the modern church. Why? Because for the last 10 years, we've been bombarded, at least the last 10 years, we've been bombarded with a culture of liberal individualism. What does that look like? Well, the liberal mindset undermines the concept of God, the concept of a God with authority over each individual. A liberal worldview says there is no God, There is no ultimate value. There's no right or wrong. And individualism is about promoting self, thinking about oneself first and foremost, and fulfilling your potential, whatever that means to you. So, for example, I saw this article in the Times Educational Supplement a few years ago, and it was sharing some ideas about what to sing at at a primary school leavers assembly. Amongst the suggestions was S Club 7, Reach for the Stars, yeah, yeah, remember it. Um, Let It Go changed humorously to Let Us Go. By far the most popular song was one called Believe. And it goes like this, humor me. When I reach up to the stars, there's a burning deep inside me. And I feel a power growing in my soul getting into this, do you reckon? There is something I can sense deep within a dream to guide me, and I know that I am reaching for my goal. I can do anything at all. I can climb the highest mountain. I can feel the ocean calling wild and free. I can be anything I want with this hope to drive me onward if I can just believe. Wait for it, wait for it, wait for it. In me. Thank you, thank you, thank you very much. 
It's the only time I'm ever going to get an applause, isn't it? It goes on. It's a really bad song, I know. But the sentiment is even worse. <laughs> it's a sentiment that says, I can do anything if I can believe in me. Our young people are being pumped full of it. Those of you in your 20s have been pumped full of it all your lives. And now you're coming to the reality of having done a okay at school, gone to an okay university, and now you're in this okay job. And, and yet you're, you're told that, but I, I was told if I believed in me, I can do anything at all. But that's not reality. Reality sucks compared to what the song says. And I've be, built my life on, on the dream, on, on, the, on the hope, on, on the lie. I can be anything at all if I believe in me. No wonder disillusionment is the biggest problem that plagues our 20s. I was, talking to, I was listening to, to one guy. Uh, he was saying, uh, uh, sorry, a TED, talk, a TED speaker. And he was saying, actually, employers are really struggling to keep 20s in the workplace. Because what they're finding is they, they just make such little impact in their first three months. They make coffee and, and, and run photocopies. And, and they're, they're disillusioned because that's not what the dream says. That's not what the lie told them. That's what our cultural identity looks like. My life is all about me fulfilling my dream. It's a shallow lie. And that cultural shift is increasingly creeping into the church. Increasingly, churches are closing evening services because people don't see the need to come twice to church on a Sunday. Many churches consider a regular attendance to be once a month. Increasingly, other commitments are taking precedent over meeting together as a church family. And young people particularly are being subconsciously taught that church is less important than things like sports or dance class. No longer is church about a family and supporting others. More and more we get the feeling that church, if, if church is not floating our boat, then we can look somewhere else for something that does. Do you see that creep of cultural identity? I can do anything if I believe in me. And if it doesn't float my boat, then I'll go find something that does. More than anything, we need to read this book to rediscover what a gospel identity looks like and to immerse ourselves in it and to live in such a way that we live Jesus-shaped lives day after day after day that shine in a world that has no answers other than believe in yourself. So let's look at Paul's opening to the book together now. And my first point is simply this, a Jesus-shaped identity. Jesus shapes identity, sorry. Jesus shapes identity. Paul's opening, he doesn't, he doesn't beat around the bush, as I said earlier. He just says it. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God. There it is, bang. This is who I am, says Paul. It's a bit like when you're at a friend's barbecue and you don't know people very well. What blokes normally do is they grab a beer and they congregate around the grill and they make small talk about sport. And then someone generally introduces themselves. They'll say, hi, I'm Mark. And you'll say who you are. And then they'll introduce the rest of the posse. And then someone generally lacking inspiration and, uh, for conversation will move on and say, uh, so what do you do? 
And, and that's the point of the afternoon where you unwittingly find out your true status and rank and value. Yeah, I'm Mark. I'm a doctor. Thanks. Yeah. Um, I'm Steve. I'm a, I'm a teacher. Oh, okay, Steve. Oh, yeah. And then it goes on and on, on until you get to the, the, the database administrator guy and everybody just stops talking. That's how identity works in our culture. We get value from what we do, what company we belong to, what car we drive, how much money people think we earn, where our family is, what our family does, who our family is. In a sense, Paul does that here. He introduces himself, but not in a way that we would normally do. Who is Paul? He doesn't boast. He could have. At one time, he would have been the person around the barbecue that everyone would have secretly wished they could be like. He could have nailed this this introduction to the book with everything that would have put him at the top of the pecking order. But instead, he starts the book of Romans by telling them that he's a servant. Literally, the word is doulos, which means slave. And it says everything that was once something to him is now nothing to him. He calls himself a slave, literally someone sold into service, and his master is Jesus. And as a slave to him, Jesus is who he is. Jesus gives him identity. He's a slave, but he's also an apostle. An apostle is someone who's who's called to speak with God's authority. What qualified you as an apostle is that you had to have seen the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ with your own eyes. And you also had to be commissioned by him to be a witness, an authoritative witness. So if you'd asked Paul, what gives you authority to say your gospel is the true gospel? He would have said, well, I've seen Jesus, the risen Lord Jesus, face to face. And he gave me this authority to be one of his official witnesses. And that's why he calls, in verse 1, his testimony about Jesus, the gospel of God. He's saying, I got this from the horse's mouth, as it were, when I met Jesus in person. And this is the point of the opening. Remember at the beginning we said that Paul was speaking to a mixed Jewish-Gentile readership that had begun to make an issue out of the differences in their identities Well, this is the medicine they needed. Not that they lost their Jewishness or their Gentileness or their Romanness, but that it would become less important to them. And more and more they would see themselves, first and foremost, as belonging to Jesus and united together in Christ. And in the same way, this kind of identity medicine is something we need today. Let me ask the question, what is it that identifies us around the summer barbecue? What are the things that we immediately go to that identify us? Paul says that gospel identity is the one thing that is most important to him. He is shaped by who Jesus is. It's where he finds peace, security, Identity, true value, true worth, true security, true unity. 
And I'm not saying that we go around the summer barbecues killing conversations with the Christian label. But Paul is saying, let Jesus shape you so much that in your mind and soul, first and foremost, what gives you value and security and identity and person and, and purpose is the person of Jesus ruling over you as king. There it is. How do you do that? Well, if you're a Christian here this morning... We immerse ourselves in Jesus. That's what our quiet times are about. I know we struggle. I know often it it, it hits the bottom of the list of important things to do in the morning. But my goodness, quiet time is not there to to be a mystical thing that, that makes your day better. Your quiet time is to shape you to be more like Jesus so that whatever happens in the day, the week, the month, the year, actually your relationship with Jesus is shaping you so much that those things will hit you and they won't hurt that much because you have Jesus. Your circumstances won't change, but your relationship with Jesus will change the way that you deal with those circumstances. That's what immersion in Jesus Christ is all about. So can I encourage you? Immerse yourself in Jesus. Immerse yourself in Jesus. That's the first thing. But the second thing is, Paul says Jesus is the gospel or the good news. So Jesus shapes identity. Jesus is the gospel. Look with verses, look at verses two and three with me. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God. The gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets in holy scriptures regarding his son, who as to his earthly life was a descendant of David. It's a joy-filled opening. Paul tells the good news about Jesus. And the first thing he says is that it's promised from ancient times in the Old Testament. He's saying, you Jews, if you read the Old Testament and if you have read it, then it's all about Jesus. You've just got to look at it in the right way. So those stories from Sunday school about uh, Daniel in the lion's den and David and Goliath, they're all about Jesus. He's saying you just have to look at them from the right angle. He also says that Jesus is God's son and he is Lord. And those two statements, one at the beginning of verse 3 and the other at the end of verse 4, outline who Jesus is. And in those two verses, Paul pads this out a bit to tell us exactly who Jesus is. He says Jesus is God's son in relationship with the Father, distinct from the Father. And the implication is that Jesus is fully God. Secondly, he became flesh. He was a physical man with physical ancestry, descended from David as as promised in the scriptures, who physically died, who was raised to physical life by the Spirit of God. In rising from the dead, thirdly, Jesus was given power and authority. Authority to judge the living and the dead. An authority that he never had before his death and resurrection. And fourthly, because of his exaltation through the resurrection. Jesus Christ is Lord. It means that he's king and ruler of the whole universe. And and for the Jewish and and Gentile readers in Rome, these would have been drop-the-mic verses. Total, total, blow your mind away. Because he's saying Jesus is God, and he has the right to rule us. 
and it's provocative language because Paul is using language of the day to put his point across. So he uses the word gospel. Now you didn't use the word gospel in his, in his world, um, in everyday to, day-to-day language. Gospel, the word gospel was reserved for exceptionally good news. News such as the birth of an emperor's heir or a massive military victory. Paul uses that word not for those things, but for the good news of Jesus' coming into this world to die and rise again. That's provocative language. He uses the title Son of God, a title normally reserved for the son of the world leader, Caesar in those days. Son of God was a title you used for the one who would inherit Caesar's empire. But Paul uses it for Jesus. And Paul uses the title Lord. Again, the Roman Empire. In in the Roman Empire, you were only allowed to use that title for the emperor. He was called Lord. He was divine in the Roman culture. Every year there would be something called the Lord's Day. You would go to the temple to Caesar. You would burn incense to the, the, the divine person of Caesar. And you would say, Caesar is Lord. No, says Paul. Jesus is Lord. It's a massive statement. It's both political and cultural. His readers were being asked to totally reject everything the culture was saying about God. Everything the culture was saying about the empire and Caesar. And they were being told to bow the knee to Jesus Christ, crucified in weakness and risen in power. And it illustrates that to become a Christian in the first century Roman world was a massive shift in worldview. And it's good to be reminded of that. Because sometimes we forget how big a change in worldview it takes for people to become Christians. You know, the Bible tells us it's a miracle of spiritual awakening that God gives to everyone who believes. And today the gospel hasn't changed. And today the challenge to accept Jesus as Lord is the same as it was when Paul wrote these words 2,000 years ago. And the culture, the the, the culture shift, the the worldview shift is still as massive. But the question is, will you believe it? Jesus is Lord. Some people are quick to understand this gospel. Others take years to understand it. I certainly did. And it might be that this morning you're sitting here utterly baffled by what we're saying about Jesus. That's cool, can I just say that? It's totally, totally loud. But let me also say the best way to understand Jesus is to ask him to help you understand him. It may take time, but if you ask him, he will help you. I promise that because he promises it. It might be that you want to come to our Christianity Explored group that was advertised earlier to find out more. The point is, do you know, expect to be confused, expect to be unbelieving at first because of the massive shift. What what Jesus is basically saying is, do you know, he is the good news. He is God, Lord. Will you believe him? 
and worship him. Come to him. The last thing that this passage promises or or tells us is this, that Jesus invites obedience of faith. Jesus invites obedience of faith. Look at verse 5 and 6 with me. Through him we received grace and apostleship to call all the Gentiles to the obedience that comes from faith for his name's sake. And you also are among those Gentiles who are called to belong to Christ Jesus. So Paul finishes his greeting by telling them that the gospel of Christ Jesus is being spread all over the Roman world. Everywhere where you could see a Roman person, that's where the gospel was being spread. And that gospel was calling people into a relationship with Jesus. What does that relationship look like? Well, in in the original, verse 5 literally says the obedience of faith, the obedience of faith. And it could mean the obedience that comes from faith, as the NIV translates. But that implies that you put your faith in Jesus at his death, uh, and his death when you come to be a Christian. And then once you're a Christian, you're given motivation to obey Jesus. Now that is a truth about the Christian experience. And later on in the book, from chapter 6 onwards, Paul talks about the way that happens but most commentators, I've got a whole library of, of people who kind of give their, short, their thoughts on, on the book of Romans. That's what I mean by a commentator. Um, the, 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 most commentators would say in chapters 1 to 5, the phrase obedience of faith is more specific than simply that process of believing in Jesus and giving the motivation on. What they would say is obedience of faith in these opening chapters is better understood to mean bowing the knee entrusting submission to Jesus and carrying on that attitude through the rest of your life. Bowing the knee, entrusting submission to Jesus and carrying on that attitude through the rest of your life. So when we first trust in Jesus, actually that is an act of obedience. We hear the news, we hear the call, obey and trust Jesus and we obey and trust Jesus. And we bow the knee. We declare Jesus is Lord, our master, our king, our everything. But Paul is saying obedience of faith is carrying that attitude as the same attitude for the rest of our lives. The way in is the way on. It means our whole lives lived bowing the knee in trusting submission to Jesus. And whatever he calls us to do, Why is that important here? Well, most Jews in Paul's day read the Bible as a law book. And if you'd ask them, what fundamental response is God looking for from us? When does the spiritual life begin? They would have said, well, when you start obeying the law. But Paul is saying that's wrong. The fundamental response God is looking for is not obedience to the law, it's obedience to his gospel and all that it means. That's how spiritual life begins and what spiritual life is based on from that point. Because a relationship with God is not based on obedience of trying to keep God's law. It's based on believing and obeying that good news, the gospel message. And it's liberating. Why? Because if you go to any other religion on this planet, 
They will tell you what stuff you need to do to get right with God. That's religion. Paul says when you meet Jesus, he will tell you what has been done to make you right with God. And it's liberating because a relationship with God is not based on trying to keep God's law. We don't need to do... uh, We don't need to go through life weighing up what we need to do to feel right with God. No, our relationship with God is based on believing and obeying the gospel message. The work's been done for us. We are free to love and follow God without condition. Isn't that amazing? If you're a Christian here and you've lost that sense of obedience of faith, that sense of obeying Jesus because of him and understanding Jesus has freed us from the need to obey the law. Well, go back to that moment that you first believed when you said, Jesus is Lord. might have been over a period of time. Jesus is Lord. And remember that moment. That sweet, sweet moment. I don't have to impress God anymore. I don't have to try anymore. Because Jesus is Lord. All that's been done. And but now, oh, how I long to follow Jesus. To follow him. To to live with him as Lord. That's what it is to immerse ourselves in him. That's why we have quiet times. That's why we pray. That's why we meet together as church family. That's why we serve and give and love. Because Jesus is Lord. And Jesus is calling us to follow him in that same humble attitude that took us to the cross for the first time. And if you're not a Christian here this morning... Well, can I encourage you to look at the person of Jesus again and again and again? Read, I I promise you I can get at least three biographies of him from the Bible. Just ask, I'll I'll bring one out to you from, from the office. Because it's beautiful. Jesus is incredible. He's majestic. He's loving. He's gracious. He's kind. He's understanding. And can I encourage you to ask him to open your eyes to who he is so that you might see Jesus is Lord. Paul wants his readers to see this, to see that Jesus shapes identity, that Jesus shapes the gospel message. He is the gospel message. And that he invites obedience of faith to him. Do you know, each of us will have uh, something that we need to do this morning. I hope, I pray, having gone back to these roots, these introductory roots of, of, of the good news of Jesus. It might be we have to examine ourselves and say, do you know, oh, I have, I have slipped into obedience of the law to obey in order to get God to like me. That's wrong. Lord Jesus Christ, please forgive me. I've been shaped by a cultural identity that just says my boat's not being floated by this culture. 
by this, by this, the church, church family. Lord Jesus, please forgive me. Let me come here to serve for the sake of Jesus so that Jesus might be my all in all. It might be that uh, this is the first time you've heard anything about Jesus. Please take that, let me, let me give you that take-home phrase. Jesus is Lord, God, King of the universe, our everything. And he invites each of us to see him as that. Can you ask him to see him as that for yourself? Let me pray. Oh, Father God, with every breath, I long to follow Jesus. What a beautiful statement. What a wonderful summary of everything that Paul says in these opening verses. With every breath, I long to follow Jesus. Lord Jesus Christ, we confess this morning how we get our identity so wrong, how we get understanding you so wrong, understanding the law so wrong, understanding obedience so wrong, understanding our quiet times so wrong. Lord Jesus Christ, we ask that you would be Lord over us this morning. May you shape who we are. May you shape our understanding of the good news. And may we accept that beautiful invitation to obey you in faith. for the sake of the glory of God and your name. Amen.